All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with actor Allison Court and writer Z.M. Thomas about childhood horrors, creepy comics, the comfy couch, independent publishing, and more. As always, thank you for listening out there. And if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Also, if you're interested in watching video, I do post the video to YouTube now. So find us on there as well at Monsters, Madness, and Magic. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. (laughs) I was going to show you, Justin, so I don't know if you can see the t-shirt that I'm actually... I I can't read the uh, lettering. Okay, it's Rue Morgue. I got this from when Rue Morgue existed as an entity in Toronto. They actually had a, that, that was their publishing location. And my son was about two and a half years old and obsessed with the macabre, all things dead, because I was raising him right. And his friend in nursery school was the same way. They basically bonded over like a coffin game that they would play. So I was able to line up a tour for them to actually tour because the room morgue that was in the junction in Toronto, it was actually at an old morgue. So they took us behind the scenes downstairs, showed us where like the pipes would go through the floor, the old embalming rooms and everything. The smell is still there. It was the coolest tour ever. So cool. Jeez. That sounds cool. But yeah, if you guys, if you just give me a, like, if you want to do print, I just, I just need a couple months heads up. Or if you just want to do online, it really doesn't matter. We could just do it in a couple weeks. All right. So Zach, Allison, take us back in time. You're both youngsters. Were you book readers, fort builders, troublemakers, or all the above? All the above for me. I was a book reader and a troublemaker. Build forts? Oh. I didn't. I know. It's very cold in Minnesota, you know. Maybe an igloo. <laughs> then there was that. <laughs> so you both read books, you know, uh, were you always just horror? Did you lean towards any fantasy? What was the, uh, what some of the authors that you were reading? For me, it was horror. So Dean Koontz was my favorite, absolutely hands down growing up. Also Peter Straub and Stephen King, but to a lesser extent, I, I just, there was something about Dean Koontz. It was... I guess more straightforward. Absolutely my favorite. Was not into, like, you know, I did the whole Narnia thing and that was fine. I liked thrillers and murder mysteries as well, but Dean Koontz, my number one. What about you, Zach? My number one always had to be Michael Crichton, but I was also obsessed with, like, Nathan Archer, particularly the Mars Attack series that he did for Martian Death Trap. S.D. Perry, you know, a lot of the kind of the the weird stuff that you would find going through like a Barnes and Noble and just mm. not knowing what it is and picking it up. That's, that was kind of my thing. Just a sidebar, Allison. I am interviewing Dean Koontz on the podcast in January. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm interviewing him from Rue Morgue as well, but I'm chatting with him uh, January 8th, I believe. <laughs> 
Dan. You just completely discombobulated me. Well, let him know that I'd say he's number one fan, but that ends up sounding like super misery stalkerish. So I don't, you know, that. But he's got a, a huge fan in Toronto, and you know, Lunette the Clown is like <laughs> one of his biggest fans. <laughs> Don't know how that'll go over, but like, yeah, no, he has a bunch of books that would be so good, both as series and even like we d- they did Phantoms, and it was all right uh, as a film. But I'd love to remake that. Like the visuals are just so it's so visceral and it's so. I'd love to make Darkfall. There's a lot of his books that I think are ripe for right now. Phantoms is probably my personal favorite of his work. Zach, when do you first uh, remember experimenting with writing yourself? Maybe, you know, short stories as a kid and such. Oh, back as I can remember. Mm. Uh, I would always have like these ideas that I would just write down, whether they were fully fleshed out or completely uh, discombobulated. Uh, I would always kind of like to experiment with various stories, uh, generally horror or science fiction, mostly horror. I wanted to ask you about the uh, the biotic crisis, Zach. Uh, just as a horror fan, were you a Lovecraft fan at all? There's a little, maybe some color out of space, some creep show in there. You know, I I wasn't initially uh, a huge Lovecraft fan, but the thing about Lovecraft is that he's always kind of being featured in everything. He is such an inspiration to every modern horror thing for the past hundred years that it's almost impossible not to have influence. Uh, whether or not you're a direct, um, whether or not he's a direct insp- uh, inspiration or not, you know, it, it wasn't until I started getting a bit more into the uh, the horror that I started really recognizing uh, the influence that he has had, and even within myself, something that I kind of aspire to be at some point. But no, no, um, I've actually only recently started getting into uh, Lovecraft's writing as a whole. That's cool because. I thought for sure you were, so it's just cool that you guys were kind of in the same vein and you didn't even know it. So, Allison, when it comes to uh, acting, were either your parents involved in the business? Do you think that's maybe where your roots came from? or Yes, unofficially. My mom and dad, they met working for an insurance company. My dad went on to do other things, but still very, like, bureaucracy stuff. And my mom stayed with the insurance company. But it was very much like Mad Men back then, where the company was every aspect of your life, your social group, your hobbies, every interest that you had. There was a group at the office that had that. So my mom was part of their theater group. She directed and acted in their plays. She uh, she was part of their choir. She was part of all of that stuff. Both of my parents were heavily, heavily into opera. They loved it. And my mom ended up becoming involved with the Canadian Opera Company. And the extras in the opera, they're called supers. So those are the the extra people that fill out the scene, but they don't actually sing. And she would get $10 per performance, or if that, actually. I think sometimes it was even free, I don't know. That was my introduction into live performance, because she was involved in an opera production. I was six years old. I went to watch one of her rehearsals, and the camaraderie, the kindness shared amongst all of the performers and the crew just it it blew me away and the director asked if i would be willing to participate in madama butterfly which was coming up in a few months and i said yes and that started it all that's the beginning (laughs) (laughs) so i'll just toss this to allison first and then uh toss it to you zach uh when you guys think back to formative films and tv shows you grew up on what comes to mind Ooh, for me, formative shows. Oh my goodness, it runs the gambit. So Doctor Who is one of the earliest. I watched a lot of the PBS shows because we, my channel was out of Buffalo. 
because when you're a border city kid, most most people in Canada are border city kids. So we heavily, heavily influenced by U.S. channels. And the same thing with our friends who are on the south side of the border, heavily influenced by Canadian channels. So I got a lot of my entertainment from the PBS channel, which brought in a lot of British stuff. So Doctor Who, Monty Python, let's see, uh, but then Wonder Woman, the Six Million Dollar Man, the Bionic Woman. I ended up getting to work with Lindsay Wagner when I was 12 years old. So that was really cool because Bionic Woman yeah. was a big part of my life. Knight Rider, I don't know, all of the important shows that, you mm. know, stuff that wouldn't be considered family shows anymore because, you know, it's too controversial or yeah. you know the A team was huge. I loved oh man, I love the A team. <laughs> Muppet show. Like just a lot of stuff that ooh, Fantasy Island. I will say Fantasy Island when I got to stay up because it was usually Friday nights and it came on the hour after Love Boat. And I would if my parents were busy entertaining people, I would sneak around and stay up and watch Fantasy Island and I loved it because it would go pretty dark. And Star Trek. How do you feel about the next generation? Oh, Next Gen was great, too. Like, okay. I liked it because it was just... I was in engineering at the time, so it became a... It was a watch party thing. And because they went a bit more nerdy with the storylines and the science, it completely suited me. What about you, Zach? What other films did you grow up on and TV shows? As far as television shows, I was kind of a Saturday morning cartoon kid. But I liked uh, the shows like uh, RoboCop, the animated series, or... <laughs> The Toxic Crusaders, Street Sharks, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Battletoads, you know, Captain Planet. So those were what I was huge into growing up. Um, and then it kind of morphed into like uh, the, the X-Files, which I was absolutely obsessed with and uh, almost got expelled from school for mentioning it because they thought it was a pornographic film. <laughs> and <laughs> I can see that. I can see how that uh, <laughs> makes up could happen. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> Yeah, I remember. I remember those days, and so those that would probably be, I think, the most formative of television shows. My dad was actually the one who was obsessed with with Star Trek, but it was kind of uh, grown up time where I was not allowed to to watch that. So my brother <laughs> and I, we were uh, exiled so the so the, the parents could have you know their Star Trek binge. <laughs> would just like to point out, I think I was more into the X Files. You were into Gillian Anderson. I just. <laughs> Uh, both, like, both can be true at the same time yeah yeah agreed with Zach. Films for films we didn't even touch on movies that's where the love of horror fostered early 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 justin when i was six years old the original salem's lot which was actually a tv miniseries i saw that when i was six and that changed me forever because you know kid vampires what and like you're killing kids in this movie <laughs> i was instantly hooked i was like that's awesome and from there all my mom was the one who really fed my horror love so all of the friday the 13th films nightmare on elm streets and my so my favorite movie is the thing as well as american werewolf in london another great um and jaws so those are my top three. Those are the movies that if they're on TV and I'm scrolling, I'm like, well, guess I know what I'm doing for the night. It doesn't matter what time of night. I'm like, I'm here. I can't, I can't not watch this now. So horror films, huge, huge part of my life. And I know with Zach, it's similar, slightly different films in terms of the, the initial influence, but that's something that we absolutely bonded over. Oh yeah, like my very first movie that I've ever seen was with my dad and it was the second Alien. 
So mm-hmm. Aliens uh, was, I think, the reason why I'm so obsessed with with like monster and creature features. Then it went to like The Blob from like the 1980s remake, which I think is one of my favorite films of all time. And then, you know, throughout the years, it would be like Jurassic Park. But I always enjoyed having those sick days because my dad would always sneak us into like these horror movies that my mom wouldn't allow us to watch, like Poltergeist, <laughs> Killer Clowns from Outer Space. You know, my dad took me to my first R-rated film, which was, I think, Starship Troopers and my uh, and then Event Horizon and The Relic. And you mentioned Jaws, Alice, and I feel like Jaws gets left out in a lot of horror conversations just because, you know, sharks are actually real. But it's probably responsible for more f- direct fear than any other movie there is. Like, who doesn't think about Jaws going to the beach? Yeah, I think, number one, the original most influential horror film would be Psycho because that completely stopped an entire generation from bathing. <laughs> um, <you know? laughs> and then, and Jaws, absolutely. Like, I don't, I don't like swimming. Right. <laughs> I, you know, pools, whatever. I, I, I don't like the feeling of water, but honestly, the ocean is terrifying. I'm like, nope, no, I'm good. We evolved onto land, <laughs> onward and upward. I'm not going back. I'm with you, 100%. Another question I'd like to ask everyone, just throw it to both of you, uh... What scared you as a kid, since we're already kind of touching the subject? For me, the scariest movies, looking back at it now, it's comical, was actually the movie House. There was this anima- like this puppet that stole a child from his bed and then whisked him away up into the, uh, into the fireplace. And I actually never knew what that movie was up until a couple of years ago. I always associated it with the Garbage Pail Kids. Yeah. But I rewatched House. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the movie that traumatized me as a kid. And the other one that did it for me was Child's Play 2, when the dad is walking down the stairs and they're open back staircases and he just slits the Achilles heel and he goes and tumbles down the stairs. I've never been so thrilled to own a house with uh, a basement with open back staircase, (laughs) 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 which I think about every time I go down to work. What about you, Allison? What scared you? I would say the movie that terrified me the most. So my mom would go out of her way to try to find horror movies that would scare me. Because they didn't. Like all of the slasher films, I became, I loved watching Friday the 13th movies. But it was just about, okay, what innovative way is he going to kill a teenager now? So those movies were great, but there was never anything scary. I loved the thing because of what it did with the dog. Which, you know, just those visuals we had never seen before. But... As like mind blowing as that was, it was still it was amazing. Nightmare on Elm Street. I was still a little kid in single digits, and I lay awake all night, almost catatonic, crying. My one safe place had been taken from me. I could not fall asleep. Like that movie was terrifying. When I finally got over that part, I was like, "Wow, that was brilliant!" And so I ended up sleeping with a poster of Freddy over my bed. Brave. Join him, right? <laughs> Some of the things, though, like I guess from movies over the years and stories, things that I'm scared of. I still think that there's a toilet monster. Um, Ghoulies? That might be what it is. I don't know. <laughs> but the idea of something coming up and grabbing me when I'm on the yeah. no. And then Zach and I, he always laughs at me because at night I cannot sleep with my feet exposed. I'm like, that's crazy. The monster is going to get you in the middle of the night. He sleeps with his feet exposed. I'm like, dude. What is wrong with you? <laughs> that is like, no, it's going to get you. Like, 
So if you don't mind, like how how did you guys meet? Obviously, you guys bonded over horror. Did you guys uh, meet on a project or something like that? It was a work thing. It was with comic books. We our mutual friend who actually has uh, published and distributed some of Zach's books, Travis. He has a company in Michigan called Source Point Press. And I had been working with Travis on other properties, taking them from comic book form and trying to develop them into a new medium, whether it would be in preparation for an animated series or a pitch for a film or whatever it might be. And Travis and I had a meeting set up. I thought I was going to be talking about a completely different property. And he came in to the restaurant and I was like, well, where is Jay? What's going?" He's like, never mind, Jay. What do you think of this? And he threw down a book called Sioux Falls, which is one of Zach's books, put it in front of me, and the cover alone was just like, what is this? This is incredible. And I started flip, flipping through it, and he's like, Zach will give you the, the spiel once he gets here. He's going to be here in like 20 minutes, so I need you to think about this, look through it, and tell me development ideas. I'm like, wait, what? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Zach shows up, gives me the spiel about the property, which that was it for me because I'm I'm a history buff, but I'm also, uh, I think history has been told the wrong way. You know, we were all taught it wrong in school. It's dry and boring and about, you know, and then the Europeans came over and then they built houses and then there was a railway. The end. And it's it's like... No, it's dirty and gritty and a lot of people died and let's tell it that way. And that's what his book, Sue Falls, It's Dark. Zach, this is you should take over now because it's your family. Yeah, sure. It's inspired by the 1862 Dakota Uprising, which uh, my great, 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 great grandfather was a part of the um, largest mass execution in American history uh, on orders by Abraham Lincoln. So this is kind of a supernatural steam t- uh, steampunk retelling of the events that kind of led up to it uh, the events that led after and i wanted to do it kind of in a way to preserve both the dakota language a lot of the dakota oral stories that are now being written down and but do it in a way that isn't dry and make it feel like it's oppression porn because a lot of people will you know when they see something like that they're they're afraid that they're going to go into it and it's going to beat them over the head over you know the things that you know had happened and it's it's one giant guilt trip my approach to that is to show the ugly sides of everything the more gritty the more dark the more brutal you're able to to make it i think the more it resonates with people because it feels a bit more honest a little bit less disingenuous so that was one of the first books that i i had a I had really started to kind of work on, and that's why I was uh, flown up to Toronto, um, where I was introduced to Allison. And the rest is history, as I say. <laughs> the rest is history. Zach, what do you consider your entry point into the comic world to be, if you had to pinpoint it? <laughs> oh, okay. So, maybe a trigger warning for some of the, the listeners. It, it deals with a... Uh, Understood. A sensitive subject matter. I wrote a story called Abe the Aborted Fetus. It's uh, about a fetus that survives an abortion to become a part of the greatest conspiracy ever conceived. It ended up getting a couple uh, former Marvel writers, I mean, um, artists attached to the project. So we ended up kind of doing something incredibly satirical, something, again, very dark, but in a way that is humorous and without the intent of going right for the jugular. 
my real turn ended up coming in about 2009 when I worked on a, uh, a comic book called Contagion. It was actually supposed to be uh, published by your uh, competitor, Fangoria, when, when they were actually in a, in the comic book scene. The, bo- the book was optioned for a film. There was interest by, believe it or not, Tobin Bell. Uh, to Shit. be a part of it, right? Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> then it was pitched, I believe, Dimension Extreme. Everything was going swimmingly until Chapter 13 hit and ended that. A couple years later, uh, a movie came out by the name of Contagion by David Soderbergh, which used a lot of my scientific premise that I had come up with for for the book Contagion. The only thing that they didn't do is they didn't bring back those who died. Uh, So ended up going and changing the name to Dead Reckoning. It ended up seeing a release, I want to say 2012 via Arcana, which is, I believe, a company out of Vancouver that I don't think exists anymore. And that was that was my uh, that was my real first foray into into the uh, comic book realm. Oh well, in the horror, and ge- yeah, specifically into the horror. You just uh, briefly mentioned Marvel a few minutes ago, and comic readers often hear about the Marvel method of doing things. Is that something that you have a lot of experience with? Do you like it? No, I I prefer having a lot of control. I like having the ability to not really so much answer to other people's expectations, but to subvert them as well. I think it's really, really important to have that kind of control because once you have something that's a machine and it's just kind of pumping these properties out that they're they're, they're treated uh, like they're on an assembly line as opposed to kind of a form of self-expression or creativity. I think that doesn't necessarily resonate with me. I, I understand the appeal to it. For me, I like having almost entire 100% control over a project, where it goes. But of course, that can also lead to its own detriment in a project because <laughs> you get this tunnel vision and you don't have somebody there being like, hey, wait a minute, maybe this isn't the best approach. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword because he gets to make his own decisions, but then he sometimes gets caught in this spiral of wanting to go back and change a thing and redo this and then... It just it keeps getting pushed back further and further because he's not answering to anybody else. And that's the standard. That's most artists, right? You're when you're on your own timeline. And sometimes you really do need that kick in the pants from somebody else who's writing the checks to be like, nope, now or never. And it's so when when it hasn't been Zach who's in charge, I think he's discovered a side of himself where he can work to other people's timelines and he can actually be extremely efficient. So now we're we're in the midst of trying to merge those two. <laughs> Best of both worlds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a work in progress. Hey, based on what I read from you guys, you're there. I'm ready for the next one. So good job on that. Allison. My wife would kill me if uh, she's a first grade teacher, if I did not bring up Lunette. So with the big comfy couch, do you remember that just being a typical audition for you? Is that anything stand out about it? It wasn't typical because I'd already made the demo for them a year prior. I was working on a show in Canada called Mr. Dress Up. It's not dissimilar to Mr. Rogers. And I was one of the local neighborhood guests that would come over every now and then. And the creators of Big Comfy Couch also worked on Mr. Dress Up. They were puppeteers. That's where they got to see me in that sort of, that genre and realized I would be great for Lunette. So we made the demo. Then when it finally got picked up and it was gonna be going to series, the investors did insist that they hold auditions. 
do a proper casting. So we did that and it was a great experience. It was a very, very different audition in the sense that it was more of a workshop. Uh, there were maybe eight of us girls, all very different. Uh, and we did a, a like a four hour movement workshop kind of audition. And it was wonderful to see because so everybody brought something unique to the character. And I think, honestly, in retrospect, any any one of us would have made a really good lunette. Ultimately, the difference was I had a lot of experience and I also had, I was both dancing, singing, as well as acting. The experience I had in terms of working specifically in preschool shows was what ultimately, I think, sealed the deal for them. And they're like, yeah, okay, we agree. She is the right person. We just had to, you know, make sure we put our executive thumbprints on this choice. So it was, it wasn't a typical audition at all. It was just a really lovely experience working with just incredibly talented other young mm. females. So from there, was it your intention to work your way into the voiceover world or did it just sort of come about naturally? Voice work started, I was 11. Yeah, and actually, I, I, technically I was younger than that. I was 10 years old when I did my first voice commercial. So I was, I was doing a lot of voiceovers right from the beginning of my TV career. From Lowry's Tacos, I was doing jingles for that. The, the alphabet serial, The Wizard of Words. That was one of my first voiceovers. I actually, the first time I ever worked with Cal Dodd, who voices Wolverine, mm. we did a voiceover demo for Coca-Cola. It never saw the light of day, but we were together singing the jingle for that. And then my first cartoon that I got, I was 11 years old, and that was Ewoks. So I was always doing cartoons and voiceover work at the same time as doing live action on camera and theater. Gotcha. Zach, let me ask you a little bit about your writing process. Do you, would you say that you're a heavy outliner, or do you like to go with the flow and maybe fix things later? Oh, uh, a little bit of both. I think uh, usually a lot of my books, they start off with like an idea or a pun, and then I kind of write an entire outline based on that pun. But then once I kind of go into the story writing mode, it's just nonstop, and then I have to fix a lot of the stuff on the back end. Can I expand on that question? Sure. I did want to ask Zach. What I get is I get the script from him for the book, like with uh, Biotic Crisis. The script, you know, where it is with the with the art and the panels, just to kind of see where we still need to tidy up. I found it fascinating reading the script because the way that it's laid out, it's already so visual that, so how do you get to that? At what stage are you writing it in script form? Like with Biotic Crisis, did you, all, did you instantly start out writing it in script form or did you write like a one page? What is your process for that? So for the Biotic Crisis, it was actually uh, during COVID and we were stuck in our apartment together and it ended up being a writing experiment. What's What was fun about that one, I had X amount of pages that I wanted to do in a week. And then I would send it off to my artist, Cliff Richards, and he would do it. So a lot of it was just kind of this weird first draft, it's gonna go. And then I clean it up at, at the back end when it goes into the art where I'd be like, yeah, this works, this doesn't. Why don't we go ahead and fix up some of the dialogue, some of the some of the stuff? So there was no actual clear path to an end. I had like a beginning and I had an ending. So I knew how I was gonna start, I knew who was gonna mm -hmm. I knew how I was gonna end. I didn't know who was gonna live, who was gonna die. And sitting there writing it in script form though like and what yes. i mean is as opposed to writing it as a story you're actually writing it in that script format dialogue and then you write out what the visuals are going to be for the artist as you're going like that's 
that's how you're yeah. writing it, you're spelling it. Yeah, it's all just spelling. That's pretty wow. cool. Yeah, because I got to tell you, Justin, the script, reading it, reading that script, I already knew what the art was going to be. And I didn't fully understand how, like Zach writes his, he creates his own IPs and he's the writer, but a lot of people are like, well, it's a comic book. So are you, how much input do you really have since the comic book is all about the visuals, right? It's so not the case because when you read through the script, the visuals are all up here in his head. So when he's writing his story, like it's there, he's sending it off to an artist that he's like, no, this artist is going to deliver what's in my brain I know and he knows exactly how to write it in the descriptive paragraphs for his artists to get that incredible art that you saw so mm -hmm. it's a fascinating thing for me to kind of look at and be like how how are you doing this how are you, like <laughs> I would say the most difficult thing about that approach though is trying to get it within a 26 page count for each book because you know you have no idea how you're gonna get to that point and somehow you just find a way to make it work I think that for me is the most challenging is trying to either find enough content or to cut content in order to hit that quota. Who came up with that number? I don't know. It's I think it's just this arbitrary comic book number. Sometimes mm. it's 22, sometimes it's 24, sometimes it's even 30. So I don't know. So with the art, like you were just describing that, uh, Cliff Richards, known for, you know, Dark Horse and some of his Buffy work, were you guys friends? Did he, did you bring him along that way or did you have a professional relationship or something? I have a professional relationship yeah. with them. Actually, when I brought back to kind of kick back to Contagion, the entire cast and crew that I worked with on The Biotic Crisis is the cast and crew that I worked with on Contagion slash Dead Reckoning. Cliff Richards did the art, Katrina Mayhew did some of the colors, and then Michael Bartolo, who is like a Marvel colorist, also did most of the colors for that book. So we ended up having this uh, working relationship. I've done stuff like Echoes of Dawn, The Eleventh Hour, which was all Cliff Richards and all Michael Bartolo. It's kind of cool to have that established working relationship all these years later yeah um where it almost feels kind of symbiotic where i can feel comfortable giving cliff the kind of freedom to if he looks at my script and see something that he feels needs to change for flow he feels comfortable enough to do that there's this mutual level of respect for uh for one each uh one another's um craft and it's i, I would consider him a good friend so the way you just described how you do the the art and script format would you say that's typical is that how it would typically be done in a normal situation or is that just with your situation because i usually hear folks talk more about the marvel method where maybe they even give you the art first and then you write based on that yeah no i i think it's atypical i know a lot of my friends who are both artists and writers they usually do the art first and then they kind of finesse it and do it and do it that way. Um, otherwise, I know a lot of my friends who are writers who are very meticulous when it comes to every single detail. And so they write like the outlines and then they kind of build upon that. And that's, and the final step is when they go into the scripting. So Allison, uh, in the same vein of, I just asked Zach his uh, writing process, I like to ask all actors because to non-actors, I feel like the term method acting is a bit muddled. What is your method? I think it's probably changed since becoming a an adult and, and certainly a, a mom. As a child actor, it was really, it's important to obviously learn your lines. Early in my career, or, or I'd say the first half of my career, it was very much about the technicality of it. I don't feel that I was ever particularly the strongest actor, certainly as a kid. It, it, 
that wasn't my forte. It was that I was really good at listening and taking direction and following technical instructions. So I would get hired a lot just because I was super focused and very good at understanding what continuity meant. Definitely memorizing my line, semi-photographic memory, which made it super easy to do a lot of content in one day, which mm. in the Canadian film and television industry is a good thing because we have a lot less money. <laughs> so we need to get a lot more done in a, a shorter amount of time. And having that ability to basically look at the script and be like, okay, how far are we going? It's, it's these four pages. All right, we'll do a blocking. And then by the time we're doing the second block through for final lighting cues to make and camera to make sure everybody knows their marks and whatnot, I've pretty much got it in my head and we're good to go. That, knowing my lighting, knowing how to always hit my lighting mark, understanding how to throw from when you're doing a multi-camera shoot. So understanding at which moment you're gonna throw it to camera two and back to one on the wide shot and just always being able to move your body to meet those camera mm -hmm. angle needs. Obviously in film that doesn't matter because everything is a new single camera setup. But for television, where we like to do it quick and dirty with multi-cameras, that was my method. That was my meat and potatoes because I was really good at that stuff. So, and then you kind of learn, I kind of learned it the, the opposite of other people. So I happened to be, I guess, a bit, I don't know, I, I was ahead of my time in terms of understanding the technical side of things. So starting at 10, when you have other kids that are like way cuter, way more talented, whatever it might be, but they're kind of idiots, right? <laughs> like on set, they're just, and, and I, I don't actually mean that they're idiots. I mean that they were real kids with yeah. like real, like they're goofing around and not really listening or paying attention to things. Drive directors nuts. And I would be sitting there just like taking it all in, seeing where the other kids were screwing up. And so then when it was my turn to come on, I would be like, bang, 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 mm. bang, bang. Director's dream. You were mature for your age. <laughs> yeah, certainly from that standpoint. And so I kind of, I got, I got work from a technical perspective and then I sort of honed my craft and got better as an actor over the years. I would say the majority of people come in with that raw talent and gift or whatnot, but it takes them a while to get used to the technical side. Mm -hmm. uh, so my advice to actors out there that are trying to get into the business or, or really improve their craft, learn about the technical side learn learn about what the the camera operator is doing and the lighting guy and the sound guy and what makes a difference and learn these things because every little thing that you can do to make somebody else's life easier on set or to to mean that we don't have to reshoot yep. or save a take as it were because you like you might see that the actor has they put the thing in the wrong hand but you move your body this way so the camera actually blocks it so it's going to cut okay like i'm not saying that's the actor's job and rarely are you going to want to do those things but it's great to have that tool set to have that awareness it can make a difference maybe not in that first job but once you land that that first one directors and crew they're gonna remember which actor was super easy to work with well said and you just kind of mentioned this it seems like you know in the late 80s early 90s that toronto specifically was a hub for all the cartoons and all the voice acting talent of the day was it what do you think it what do you think it was just an influx of talent in toronto or was was that where home base was for those 
companies? Yeah, I mean, we 100% owe it to Nelvana. So Nelvana started here, started in Toronto. This is this was their home base. And because of the work that they started doing in the 90s, they just exploded. Sorry, in the 80s, the work they were doing in the 80s. And then just they were the number one in, you know, in many ways, the only game in town in the 80s. And then in the 90s, other companies started to spring up. And it was people who had worked for Nelvana or trained under Nelvana or... When you got to the late 90s into the 2000s and Nelvana got sold and those guys, you know, Michael and Clive uh, and Patrick, they all went off and did their own thing and some went and started other new companies. Absolutely, Nelvana is the reason that we have an animation industry and subsequently a voice industry in Toronto. Zach, I meant to ask you this earlier. Do you remember the first comic you ever bought or were gifted? Oh, man. I remember, like, vividly, I remember being given at i want to say my after school daycare was the uh wedding comic for scott and gene gray and i remember that was actually the very first physical comic that i've ever had like i i, I would used to go to this place small little comic shop called uh, shinders with my dad and we uh we didn't have a lot of of disposable income so my dad would take me there and we would kind of go and just flip through all the comic books and just spent a couple hours there. Inevitably, we would leave with Pogs. I remember always <laughs> reading like Spider-Man. Um, I was always more of a Marvel guy. Uh, I never really got into the DC side of things, but it was always like the X-Men, Spider-Man, and even the Punisher, which I think were, as a kid, I thought those were like the coolest things, like Todd McFarlane's, uh, you know, Venom, mm-hmm. I thought was probably one of the most influential. And then I remember the most, the first comic book that I ever personally bought was Johnny the Homicidal Maniac by <laughs> Jonah Vasquez, which I think may have been one of the largest, uh, most inspirational books that I've ever read. Really? I'm not familiar with yeah. that one. Are you familiar with uh, Invader Zim? Yeah, 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 yeah. Creator of Invader Zim is Jonah Vasquez. He used to work for a like a small publisher, I think, or published them, I should say, called Slave Labor Graphics. And he did a book called Johnny the Homicidal Maniac, which is kind of like this really kind of gothic, noir, satirical take on, I would say, very American psycho-esque. It's fantastic. It's really funny. It's really obscure. Um, I think there's a couple new publishing that they just re-released with it. So I would recommend anybody who has never had a chance to read it to absolutely do so. I'm jotting it down. Is Trepidation Comics your company? Yeah, Trepidation is uh, my small publishing house. What was the uh, catalyst for getting that off the ground? Oh, God. You know, I, I, I had it for 10 years before anything ever even came out. It was all about building up IPs, building up ideas, trying to make connections with people who were willing to work with me. Take a, take a real risk on somebody who has honestly never been in the industry or, you know, has no right asking some of the people that I'm asking for, for help. But one of the people, his name is Dave Campiti, who is the uh, writer of the Superman series back in the 80s and uh, Lost in Space. Uh, he decided to check, uh, take a chance on me. And he introduced me to the likes of people like Cliff Richards, Amelia Wu, Bong Dazzo, Al Rio. And every single one of those people took a chance. And we all kind of created some pretty amazing work together. But it wasn't until about 2009 when print-on-demand started to kind of pop up. And print-on-demand allowed people like me who couldn't afford offset printing and didn't have the storage to do like thousands and thousands of books 
to to run small print runs and that's how i started getting into the comic book uh convention circuit and from there that's where you know you get your visibility that's where you start meeting like publishers that's where you start meeting the artists and you kind of grow this network of of friends and colleagues and it's such a tightly knit circle that almost everybody knows everybody through just years and years of you know grinding and doing the shows every other weekend it allowed me to kind of evolve in in many different ways meet tons of wonderful people and really kind of get this off the ground and in some ways become an imprint of uh source point press allison i want to ask you this and i know how ndas work so please tell me to shut up or whatever uh, are you involved in the x-men reboot can't can't talk got it <laughs> got it i i know how i know i know <laughs> <laughs> No need to apologize. I, actually, I was going to tell you something. So funnily enough, Zach hasn't talked about one particular book, and that's fine. But the night that we met after we discussed Sioux Falls, and then he mentioned this other book that he had created, it turns out I was like, wait, you're that guy? I had seen him on my TV at like 2 o'clock in the morning. We used to have a channel here in Canada called Space. And those guys, they were great. The, the two hosts that did all the interstitials, they would go to the different conventions and whatnot and do weird interviews or whatnot. And I had seen them interview this guy down at some Comic-Con because, you know, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, I can't sleep. And here's this guy talking about his comic called The Bible 2. And I remember at the time, like, watching it, I'm like, you cheeky little shit. The Bible 2. Wow. That's a great name. That's a great name. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, bunch of years later i'm like wait a second i knew you look familiar i've seen your face on my tv at two o'clock in the morning <laughs> yeah well i know we got to wind down here guys so this is something i like to ask everyone start with allison have you ever had an experience you would consider supernatural or paranormal <laughs> okay, I, uh, <laughs> so i will do yeah he's laughing because <laughs> so i'm not a i don't believe in ghosts and demons and all of that stuff. It, anything that goes with a religious tone, I'm like, oh my god. I would like to believe that we have, that there are aliens, because the idea of us being alone in the universe is pretty sad. and ugh. Terrifying. So I hope that there are aliens out there, and god, I cannot wait for them to come and take over, because we're awful as a species, so <laughs> there we go. But, in terms of a an experience that I cannot fully explain... Yeah, so Zach ha believes his house is haunted, and we we had a, my first weekend that I ever visited his house. There were some moments that I can't fully explain. There was a situation. The first one we were we were in the bedroom, engaged in adult activities, <laughs> and. <laughs> Peripherally, I saw something move, wasn't sure what it was. He got to see from the angle that he was at. When we finally went to look, he's like, I know what it was. I don't know why. So this metal thing went flying across the room. Phantasm style. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and then later that weekend, he went out to pick up some food. And I was sitting in the family room, got up to go to the washroom. When I came out of the washroom door... His phone was on the floor in front of me. So I sat down. I was like, hey, did you forget your phone here? And he's like, yeah, I had it on the table. I'm like, that's what I thought. Well, it was now on the floor in front of the washroom when I came out of the washroom. He's like, yeah, I told you there's a ghost. I'm like, hmm. 
And then we were just sitting in the family room talking, and then we heard something just go boom. And sure enough, from the shelf outside of his bedroom, one of his little amiibo toys went flying off for no reason. So I think that there were things that would be like seismic activity and house shifting and all that stuff that can explain technically, maybe. But yeah. What do you think, Zach? So to preface, I, uh, I live on probably an ancient Indian burial ground. I live on a reserve in, in Minnesota. So I've had a lot of experiences in that house. Uh, one being with my dad actually watching Austin Powers. Apparently the ghost didn't like it because it picked up a potted plant and threw it across the room. And it scared the crap out of my dad. I've never seen him jump over the couch and run. Has it all been in this one house? Not all of it. My mom's house, I believe, is. Uh, we had a uh, an elderly woman die in her office and so i would always have to sleep with the door shut because i could always see like a figure standing looking into my bedroom which used to be her son's room it never felt malicious it never felt like anything like that i never had any any like uh movement of objects or anything but that would primarily be in the uh the house that i currently live on i did send her a photo a video of yoda turning his head and he had no batteries in him, but he still turned and his head looks at the at the camera because he kept doing that. And I was like, nope, I'm going to see if I can get him. And I did. <laughs> yeah, it was a video. I showed it at work to my friends. <clears throat> and to this day, I have a couple of friends that are like, they almost pee their pants when they tell the story. <laughs> because we're watching. He basically, he was, was on the phone with me all night. He's like, no, there's activity going on. My bedroom is shut and locked, but there's thumping going on. And he's like, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. He's like, stuff is moving. Yoda's turning his head. I'm like, we'll take out the battery. He's like, there are no batteries. <laughs> and so eventually, like, he got his camera, and you're there, and you're waiting, and all of a sudden, you see him. He just goes like this and looks at the camera, and Zach's like, nope, and he leaves. He stayed at a hotel that night, and then the next day, he came back, and he, like, smudged the whole house. <laughs> Understandably. Yeah. So, <laughs> are you still in that house, Zach? Yeah. yeah. Mm, I'm going to have to rewatch the footage and see if anything moves in the background. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh well, not today. He, we're actually in Toronto today. Oh, okay, so, gotcha, gotcha, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, we'll have to do the next call from from the Minnesota house and see what happens. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Uh, just before I let you guys go, just to ask you both, uh, I'd like to ask Allison, what's the best acting advice you received, and who gave it to you? And Zach, best writing advice, and who gave it to you? I, I think one of the best thing uh, words of advice was actually them telling me to never write another book again. After uh, after one of my books uh, came out, I was told perhaps this is not the uh, the job for me, and I got a rejection letter from um, uh, Dark Horse, which I actually have framed in my office. Mm. And for me, it was one of those moments where I'm like, okay, I'm clearly not at the level that I think that I am at. And instead of being discouraged by this, it was all about me trying to be good enough and not necessarily for somebody else, but for myself and to really use that as a motivating factor. And so I did. I continued to, to write and write. And, you know, throughout the years, I, I've had people tell me, maybe this isn't your the thing you should be doing. And I'm like, oh, but I'm going to make it. Mm -hmm. And so I think just having that drive and not really listening to what anybody else has to say, I think is one of the most important things that you can do as a creative because um, there's going to be constructive criticism and then there's going to be criticism that is going to motivate you. And I think taking that uh, criticism that 
motivate you and and doing what you're what you love with it is going to make you better at your craft i think better than i would say half the uh, constructive criticism that you get i agree with you man that's well said on a similar note, I have to say Sydney Iwanter. So Sydney Iwanter was the executive at Fox Kids, who's responsible with uh, Margaret Lush for getting the X-Men animated series and Batman, Spider-Man, and all of those amazing 90s morning cartoons that just pushed it to a different level and had more sophisticated storytelling. I had been doing Beetlejuice, and uh, the next up was X-Men. And Sydney had also been the executive on Beetlejuice, and he was so sick of my voice. He had he told X-Men casting, he's like, I don't care who you cast for Jubilee, just don't cast Allison Court. I cannot <laughs> listen to that voice anymore, <laughs> right? His advice, they cast somebody else, didn't work out. So I was brought in as a replacement. And for like most of that first season, everything out of my mouth, because Sydney would come up and attend the recording sessions, Every time I said something, you'd be like, no, sounds like Lydia, do it again. And he forced me and he was, he was not wrong because for three years I had been Lydia. And so my voice just became that more, that nasally place of speaking and I couldn't get out of it. And he forced me to find a different part of my vocal cords and chamber and everything else. And that was fantastic because it made me realize that you have to explore the instrument. It is an instrument and there are multiple things that you can do with it, but it takes time, it takes body awareness, and you have to listen, listen, listen. So hard. Uh, so for voice actors, experiment with your voice. Number one thing, listen. Because what you think is coming out of your mouth isn't going to be what's coming out of your mouth. And Sydney forced me to listen and to take control of my instrument and explore it and find different places to put my voice. Well, guys, it's been a pleasure chatting with both of you. I guess just to put a final bow on everything, just tell us what's on the horizon that you can share without getting in trouble. I'm directing My Little Pony right now. So that's going on, and that's pretty great. Uh, we've got some conventions coming up in the new year, uh, just waiting for confirmation. So I can always send you those details gotcha. once we have it confirmed. And there are two shows that I can't say anything about right now. Sorry. Understood. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'm continuing to work on the biotic uh, crisis. Um, volume two is currently in the works. Uh, I am also working on a children's book uh, called Trash and Can It, which is in kind of the same vein as, you know, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Earthworm Jim. So awesome. So, yeah, that, those are I think that's about it for me. OK, well, Allison, Zach, thank you both again for giving me some of your time. I really enjoyed talking to both of you. Thanks so much. For your time, yeah, likewise. All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Allison and Zach. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs>